Mark chapter 2, verse 18 through 22. Before I, I look in the text, though, I do want to remind everyone that we do have a business meeting tonight. We have a business meeting once a year. It's going to be actually, uh, we're going to have lunch and then get right into the meeting. Now, it's not only for people who are already members, but actually people who are regular attenders or who anybody who wants to stay. Because in the business meeting, we give you, Dwayne gives you a lot of information one of our elders, about everything that we've done last year, all the financial stuff and different things that we're thinking about. Uh, so we really encourage, want to encourage you to come, right? We really do. And, it, it uh, you know, like we're, we're going to have something to eat, and then as soon as we get done with that, we'll go right to the business meeting that will be in here. All right? So uh, we really like you to – I want to encourage you to come and stay and stick around if you've never been to one. It, it's an experience uh, to learn some things about what we're doing. All right. With that said, uh, let me read this morning our text, verse 18 through 22 of, of Mark chapter 2. And the Word of God says this, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came, to, came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well, but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for the Word of God. I pray that you would allow me, as your servant, to bring forth the word to your people. Give them listening ears and a will to accept your word and a desire to want to actually do it and discern what it says. And I pray, Lord, that you enable me to do that today and bless our time in your presence as we hear from the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Now, just mentioning already, uh, Mark has given us an understanding of the authority of Jesus in his teaching and over demons. We, uh, we saw Jesus as a servant like no other servant, uh, who had compassion. Uh, we had, we saw Jesus in his right and his might as the Son of Man who has authority, of course, uh, over to forgive sin on earth. And last time we saw that Jesus was a friend of sinners. We heard about the scandal of amazing grace. That is, that Jesus wanted a man who no one wanted. That was the tax collector. He called the man who had a dubious character, who was despised by the people, and of course who were rejected by the leaders, the religious leaders of the people. So this, the real scandal of grace is that Jesus takes is able to turn sinners like you and I 
and make them image bearers who reflect the glory of God. He's able to take the deepest and the grossest of sinners and make them what they never thought they could be. And all that is possible by scandalous grace. And, of course, Jesus' choice to become a friend of sinners. Now, if you have not noticed already, there has been a consistent barrage of questions that have been hurled at Jesus from the start of his ministry in Galilee until now. And for the most part, those questions have been derogatory in nature. And they were basically posed by or motivated by a group called the scribes and the Pharisees. Of course, questions already that I've mentioned and the text have mentioned, like, why does this fellow, a fellow like this, uh, forgive sin? It's blasphemy. Who can forgive sin but God? But God alone. And then why does this man eat with tax collectors and sinners? And so we come this morning to this text, and there's a question about fasting. In our narrative today, there are some new participants present. These new participants are unnamed and simply are referred to as they. This group of people have a question for Jesus. Now, of course, if we go to the Gospel of Mark, or excuse me, of uh, Luke, we will, or excuse me, Matthew, chapter 9, we will find that uh, this group is distinct from the Pharisees, and according to Matthew chapter 9, it's the disciples of John that came and asked him this question. But I'll assure you that they were prodded by the scribes and the Pharisees. It says in verse number 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came to him and said to him, Why do John's disciples and disciples of the Pharisees fast? but your disciples do not fast. So there's the question. Those engaging in the activity of fasting, one group, and the other group, those not engaging in the activity of fasting. So what's going on here? Well, if you look again at verse number 18, it says John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. So these two groups were presently engaged in the religious activity of fasting. That means at some point in your life, your uh, day or week, that you're denying yourself food. Basically, that would be a basic fast. You deny yourself food uh, for a certain amount of time. So if you recall, Jesus and his disciples were just eating at the tax collector's house. Remember that? And they were eating with, of course, tax collectors and sinners. So they were observing them Jesus and his disciples feasting. So they're thinking, if your disciples are a new religious group, they would know that fasting is a prominent part of the lifestyle of those who commit themselves to religion. Now, they would say that one is only taken seriously when one shows piety in fasting. Now, it's not hard to see that the Pharisees were also behind this controversy. And in their opinion, Jesus doesn't get it right. 
Now, there could be several possibilities for John's disciples fasting. Now, of course, these are disciples of John the Baptist. The first thing, it could be these disciples were fasting because John the Baptizer was imprisoned and had not been put to death yet. So it wasn't time for eating and drinking. It was time for praying and fasting. A second reason why John's disciples could be fasting is that, and it was, of course, it could be equally possible that fasting was a prominent part of the life of a religious person in that day. So it would be common because the influence of the scribes and Pharisees that anyone who would be connected to any uh, religious system uh, would be fasting in some way or another. Now, of course, the influence of the Pharisees permeated the religious culture of the day, and the Pharisees, according to their own tradition, fasted twice a week. The Pharisees normally fasted on Mondays and Thursdays between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. Now, fasting had become, in Jesus' day, a prerequisite for religious commitment. Fasting was a sign of the atonement of sin. It was a sign of humiliation. It was a sign of repentance before God. And, of course, it was also a general aid to prayer. Usually when someone fasted, they would pray or prayer fasted. They would kind of go together. However, there's a problem. And the problem is not fasting. God is not against fasting. If it is done, of course, for the proper purpose in the proper way. The problem lies in, in, in this, in its imposed frequency and, of course, its improper use. The Pharisees had imposed upon the culture that if you were going to be religious and follow Judaism, whether you were baptized or became a Jewish proselyte or a Jew yourself, that you were to at least fast twice a week. So there would be a problem, again, with its imposed frequency, and, of course, that would mean it would be improperly used. Now, while the Old Testament recorded various seasons of fasting, we see fasting all over the place in Scripture, which is a good thing, and it's still used today. But God only established one day of fast in the Old Testament. That was the Day of the Atonement, when the people got ready to take on that huge uh, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, all right, where they would bring, of course, get themselves ready for the animal sacrifice and consecrate themselves. And those times were used as a time of fasting. They would not take in food during that time, and it usually was a 24-hour period, one day a week. That's the only place in the, all the Old Testament that a fast is required by God's people. In fact, it tells us in the book of Acts when, when uh, Paul was, being, uh, was on the ship and was ready to be shipwrecked, and the, everybody on the ship, they were not eating, and Paul encouraged them to eat. It even re- records in uh, at the book of Acts, it says, since much time had passed, 
And the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. That was the one-year fast. It was already order, over and the people still, still weren't eating. Paul was, in, again, encouraged them to eat for their own uh, health when they were at sea in a storm for many days. So the problem lies in the insistence of the Pharisees to actually go beyond the law of God. Remember, in the Pharisees' mind, they thought, okay, if God says to fast once a year, well, if we impose a two-day-a-week fast, that means we're actually putting a hedge around the law of God so we don't fall off, so we could never say that we didn't fast at least once a year. So, the problem lies in the insistence of the Pharisees to go beyond the law of God and to insist on what God has not insisted and to seek to undo God with man-made traditions. And that's the problem that Jesus has with the Pharisees is that they go beyond the law of God. They put fences around the law of God, and in doing so, they actually violate and negate the law of God and the word of God. And so Jesus has a real problem with that, and we should too. To add to or to take away from the word of God is a warning in Scripture. We have to be careful of that warning. In the parable, if you remember, when uh, Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus was uh, chapter 10, Jesus mentioned the pharisaical fasting when he says, remember when two men went up to the temple to pray, one was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And then he says this to Pharisee, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was not even willing to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to a sinner. Of course, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. So see, there's a great distinction there in that parable between the Pharisees in their mindset and that a tax collector or a sinner who understands they're a sinner under God's judgment. Jesus says that one went away justified where the Pharisees who thought they were righteous went away unjustified because they thought they already had it all taken care of before God. Now, that's one group. There's another group, though, mentioned in our text, and it's the group called the Christians or the disciples of Jesus. In Mark chapter 2, verse number 18, if you notice the last part of the verse, it says, but your disciples do not fast. So in our text, there arises a contrast between John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples which were fasting, but Jesus' disciples were not fasting. So this became an interesting observation from 
those who are curious about what's really going on here. Why aren't why aren't your group of religious followers fasting? Well, actually, it, this passage is not specifically about the workings of fasting. This passage actually is about the role and the mission of God presented in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In other words, the title of the message is this, when with the coming of Jesus, everything changes. See, once Jesus steps on the scene and begins to lay out the mission of God, everything changes. Judaism is now confronted with the full message of God's plan of redemption. And so the Pharisees definitely are standing on edge against Jesus because they don't understand what he's doing. So Jesus begins to present now himself and his mission to those who are listening, to John's disciples, to the Pharisees, and to his own disciples. And he actually says three things about himself. And the first thing that is mentioned about Jesus is this, that Jesus is the bridegroom. He is the bridegroom who is present. That means while the bridegroom is present, you shouldn't be fasting. You should be feasting. You should be celebrating. All right, so now look what it says in our text in verse number 19. And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast. Can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Of course, we have to ask the question, who's the bridegroom? Well, Jesus is referring to himself as the bridegroom, right? And so the bridegroom is now present with those who are following with him, with his disciples. Now, The bridegroom, though, is likened unto God in this particular text, and for this reason. The Old Testament never refers to the Messiah as the bridegroom. The bridegroom in the Old Testament is God and is the bride of Israel. But in the New Testament, the bridegroom is the Son of God, Jesus, who is the bride of the church. So when we look at a passage like this, we are seeing that in this metaphor, the bridegroom, Jesus, is claiming to be more than the Messiah, or more than having Messiahship. He is claiming in this text to be God. In fact, there's one passage of Scripture, or a couple in in the Old Testament that refer to that. I just want to read you one from Isaiah chapter 54. It says this. It says, For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. Now, that's Isaiah 54, verse 5 and 6. And referring to the bridegroom or the husband who would be in that passage, God himself. So in other words, when Jesus calls himself a bridegroom, he is calling himself more than Messiah in the sense of the Messiahship who comes to deliver his people. He is calling himself God. 
Now, a second thing I want you to notice in our text in verse number 19 is this. It says, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast. So long as the bridegroom is with them, they cannot fast. Now, this must push us into understanding what a Jewish wedding was like. See, in in a Jewish wedding, the people did not go on a honeymoon. Actually, they went back to their home, the home of the husband. The crowd of people would go get the wife and pick her up and bring her to the house of her husband. All right, And for one week, everybody would come. It would be feasting and rejoicing, anybody who wanted to come. But usually the cho- choice friends were invited, were the, came at the invitation of the bride and the groom, and they're called in Scripture the attendants of the bridegroom. Or another way, literally, it's called the children of the bride chamber. Now, that's a very interesting phrase, because for that one week, everybody stayed there at the house and celebrated for seven days. How How's that for a honeymoon? You can't wait till your guests go home, so you can go on a honeymoon, right? Well, that's not the case here. The case here is that all in attendance there, and this is the point, all intended in the, who came to the wedding feast were relieved from all religious observances. In fact, the wedding guests were actually exempt from all fasting. Even if the Pharisees and scribes were invited to the wedding, they were exempt. So the imagery of a wedding it should be happy and joy-filled. Nobody fasts at a wedding. Fasting's out of the question. Could you imagine inviting 150 guests to your wedding feast where in that feast was prepared all kinds of food and beverage for consumption and enjoyment and 150 people show up on a religious fast? Boy, that wedding would turn quickly into mourning. No, you're supposed to celebrate at a wedding, are you not? Even today, weddings should be celebrations. And uh, it's a time of, of, of enjoying yourself, of eating, of drinking, of, of uh, just having a good time. So the disciples are like people not mourning. They are like people at a wedding feast. And as long as Jesus, the bridegroom, is present with his disciples and in, of course, pleasant association with them, there's no need to fast. It is time to celebrate. It is time, of course, to feast. It is not a time to fast and mourn. So Jesus' disciples are people who are not mourning. Biblical Christians actually should take heed at this particular point. Because a relationship with Jesus Christ is not solemn And it's not a boring affair. It is a celebration to be a Christian. It's a spiritual banquet of joy and blessing to be a Christian. So we shouldn't be walking around looking like we're mourning. We should be walking around looking like we're celebrating. 
See, Christians do not mourn when it's time to celebrate. Now, Jesus said to us, He is present in spirit. He is present in His word. Jesus even says, I will never leave you or forsake you, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age when He told His disciples His mission, and He left them, and that mission is still ongoing today. So that means Jesus is present with us as the church. So we should be celebrating, but that doesn't mean that we are to never fast because we are in a spiritual battle as believers. God's not done with his plan yet. We are heading somewhere. We are in the middle of or at the end of God's plan and how whatever he's doing, he's doing something very specifically. So, see, his disciples, while Jesus was with his disciples right on this earth, there was no reason for them to fast at all. They were to celebrate. Now, there's a second thing, though, Jesus tells us, or actually it's part of the first thing that Jesus tells us about himself as being the bridegroom, which I think is very, very interesting what he says in verse number 20. He says the bridegroom is going going to be removed, and that's the time to fast. Look what it says in verse 20. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. See, the bridegroom is, Jesus is telling us about himself that he's going to be forcibly removed. Here's a prophecy about the passion and death of Jesus Christ. In fact, I'd like you to take your Bibles, take your Bibles real quick and turn to Isaiah chapter 53. You know that passage in Isaiah 53, right? Where it's talking about the suffering servant. Notice what it says there in Isaiah 53, specifically in verse number 8. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but verse number 8. It says, by oppression and judgment, he is taken away. And as for his generation, who consider that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. In other words, Isaiah had already told us that the, the one who's going to die in the place of sinners is going to be the one who's going to be taken out of the way and they were going to be cut out from the land of the living. Well, Jesus is referring him to himself as the bridegroom, as the one now who is taken away from his disciples. Now, of course, remember a clear picture of the death of Jesus Christ, right? Leading to his payment of sin, leading to his resurrection, leading to his ascension out of this world into heaven. So see, the bridegroom's mission is he did not come to reform us. He came to regenerate us. He didn't come to improve us. He came to make us new. That was part of his mission. Of course, remember, in the in the passage of Scripture in, that I've been uh, saying to you is the key verse of the Gospel of Mark, verse number t- chapter 10, verse 45, where it clearly says to us that... In verse number 45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So see, giving his life was part of his mission. So he is telling his disciples, listen, there's going to come a time, matter of fact, you are going to experience that time when I get ripped away from you. 
I will be snatched away to suffer alone on the cross, to atone for your sins, to die a death you cannot die, to pay a price you cannot pay. I'm going to die in your place. I'm going to bear the wrath of God for you. I'm going to take the judgment of God in your behalf. So see, the right time, the right time to mourn is when you and I consider the great and infinite price that was eternally paid for us by our Lord Jesus Christ, the bridegroom on the cross. See, we mourn when we consider our own sin and what our sin did to the Messiah. That's a time to mourn. But we don't stay there because we know we have victory in Christ Jesus also. So Jesus is not opposing fasting. His disciples will fast again once Jesus is forcibly removed from them and once Jesus dies as a substitute for sinners, is resurrected from the dead and ascends into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, his disciples will fast again and mourn and they will feast also because they know the plan of God. But that but when they do it this time, it will be with an understanding that Jesus is the bridegroom. He is coming back to get his bride. He's coming back to get his church. So here's the connection. That Jesus disciples to fast when the king, when the bridegroom is present with, with, that, with them would be, would, would be foolish. See, the, the Pharisaic ritualistic fasting is what Jesus is against. He is against going without food, knowing that that is part of the old way of doing things, and that's part of the perversion of what the Pharisees did to Judaism. It is foolish. It is foolish as two things. As sewing unshrunk cloth to an old garment, or pouring new wine into old wineskins. Now he gets very down to where the rubber meets the road right here in these, these two parables. If I were to ask you this morning, how would you respond to someone who asked if there weren't several roads that lead to God? What would you tell them? If they said to you, listen... I've been thinking a while, and I, I, I hear what people are saying, and I think that there are several roads that lead to God. Not just this Christian road that leads to God. And so, and of course, that's the pluralistic mindset of our culture. I mean, it's very hard to get around that mindset in our culture. But Jesus, in this passage of Scripture, is becoming very clear. He is saying, listen, because I've come on the scene... Everything is new, and all the old stuff has to be discarded. And all of it has to be new. You can't have any of the old stuff. And so this is what he says. A third thing that Jesus really brings up about himself is that Jesus is the new robe. Everything else must be discarded off you. Look what it says in verse 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, 
and of course a worse tear results. Now that was common knowledge in those those days. You just don't do it. You still you still don't do it today. Try to to put like a new patch on an old dungarees or old uh, uh, they don't call them dungarees anymore, do they? Uh, jeans, right? And uh, you know what's going to happen? It's going to it's going to you know it's going to shrink if the patch wasn't sh- pre-shrunk, and it's going to just tear away. Now, of course, in this case. Uh, it's going to be make a, a worse rip, a worse hole. So Jesus is basically saying all the old must be discarded. You can't put a new patch on an old garment. Right? Now, when Jesus, what Jesus brings in his teaching cannot, like a mere patch, be fastened to an old worn-out garment. The old must be completely discarded and the new accepted in completeness. completeness. That means that not a new patch, but a whole new robe needs to be put on a person. In other words, that the new replaces the old. Now, what's the old? The old robe is Judaism or any false religious work system. All right, now this... So what the scribes and the Pharisees made of Judaism during that time, its doctrines and its practices, Jesus was totally against. The traditions of men, the outward observances, old formalism, you know, fasting two times a week when God only required one time a week, shadows and types that didn't lead to the real substance, Jesus Christ, false works-based righteousness, and not righteousness by faith alone in Christ alone. See, Jesus did not come to patch things up. He did not come with some additional teachings to clarify what the Phariseistic Judaism was in his day. The gospel of Jesus Christ didn't add to Judaism, it reformed it. The gospel of Jesus Christ fulfilled Judaism and superseded it and suspended it. That's what it did. And it does that for all religious systems even ones that we created in our day. Because men are born to be spiritual and to worship, and they come up with their own religions. That's why there's so many religions in the world, but there's only two religions. There's the religion of works, where you work your way to God to try to please him and obtain salvation. Or there is the, there is the gospel, there is the way to God through free grace. That Jesus is not an attachment He is not an addition. He's not an appendage or a filler to the status quo of religion. He cannot be integrated into or contained by pre-existing structures. Whether it's Judaism or Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or Catholicism or Christianity, that is not based on the Bible. That all works-based religious systems must be completely discarded to be able to follow Christ and obey the Lord. Now, I already said that it is popular today to say that all religions are basically the same and that all roads lead to God. Now, this religious pluralism claims, for example, that if you follow the teachings of Buddha, you will eventually find yourself in a right relationship with God. Additionally, pluralists claim that there are multiple Hindu ways to multiple Hindu gods. Of course, they claim 
there is a Muslim way, and there is a Jewish way, and of course, for us, there is a Christian way to God. Whichever path you take, you'll get to the same destination eventually. All roads then lead to the divine. That's, that's, that's the mindset of our culture. That's, that's out there. It's, it's everywhere, right? Jesus is saying, no, that's not true. The doctrine of the kingdom of God is the preaching of free grace received by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone. The old robe of works must be discarded and the new robe of Christ's righteousness imputed to the sinner's account must take its place. You cannot have both. You cannot sew one to a a, a new patch to an old garment. It will just make a bigger mess and confuse too many people. And not only that, it's not God's way. See, salvation is not a partial patching up of one's life. It is the whole new robe of righteousness. It's Jesus, or the Word of God, who tells us, and He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, not obtain our own righteousness by keeping some kind of works-based religious system. The Christian life is not mixing of the old and the new. It is the fulfillment of the old in the new. Now, this brings me to a last thing that Jesus says about himself, which, of course, is the second parable he uses, that Jesus is the new wine and wineskin. Everything else must be replaced. Look what it says in verse 22. No one who puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins. The wine is lost and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. So again, the old must be discarded. Can't keep filling up an old container with new wine that will expand the container by the fermentation process which in the end will result in a climax. In other words, there will be disastrous results. The new wine ferments in the stiff, old, dried-out wineskins, and kaboom! Explodes! The old wineskins burst under the pressure of fermentation, and both the new wine and the old wineskins will be lost. In other words... The new wine of Christianity cannot be contained by the old wineskins of Judaism or for a matter of fact, any works-based religious system cannot coexist with true Christianity. If one tries to combine the old Phariseeistic doctrine and ways with the gospel of grace and faith, the new will explode the old and both will be lost and severely distorted. That's folly. And one must really cast aside all the old Phariseeism, all the old legalism, and all its ways, and take only the new way of life in Christ Jesus that fits the new doctrine in Christ, which really is the old doctrine. It's not old in the sense, but it it explains what Christ's mission and work was when he came to this earth. So see, the new of course, must 
the new replaces the whole. In verse, the last part of verse number two, last phrase there, it says, but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. That's something you must do. You must put the new wine into something new. You can put the new wine into something old because it'll be all be ruined. If one is trying to sow Jesus' mission into the, into their religious system, and that system is a works-based system, it will tear apart and make a bigger hole, and it will explode and make a bigger mess. In other words, false religion is like old wineskins that cannot contain new life. It is not possible to confine old legalism with the new experience produced by faith in Christ. And there can be no compromise between work, works-based religion, religion and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The religious structures must be discarded and replaced by Jesus' authority and teaching, which really surpasses all structures of faith and practice. So Jesus is saying, I'm the only way. That's what he's saying here. I'm the only way. I'm the only truth. I'm the only life. The only way you're going to be made right with God is for me. If you try, and this is what happened so many times. When I was in Israel, one of the things that I was talking one of the uh, people about when they were talking about planning a church in uh, Tel Aviv, an international church, I says, the problem that I see is that Judaism is just going to add Jesus on to everything else they're believing. And so that's going to be, that's going to be a false conversion. And not only that, that's a false religion. You can't do that. You have to discard it all. It's got to all be gone. And I was a former Roman Catholic. Some of you were reforming former Roman Catholic. The reason or ground of the reformers was to declare a sinner just. That was their thought. How is a sinner just before God? And for your information, uh, both the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformed theology uh, are, we're both concerned about justification by faith. Both sides actually recognized the great human dilemma is how unjust sinners can even hope to survive a judgment before the court of an absolutely holy and absolutely just God. However, one ri- arrived at the c- uh, conclusion one way, one arrived at it in, in another way. When one, when someone asks you what is the main difference between what your church teaches, if it's a Bible church, and what Roman Catholics teach, well, then you would have to say, honestly, because it hasn't changed in Rome since the beginning, they still hold to the same things, that the Roman Catholic view of justification would be that Roman Catholics believe and teach that justification is by grace, through faith, and because of Christ. Now you may have be surprised by that, but it's true. Faith is the prerequisite, the foundation and the root of justification. 
Grace is needed for justification. Christ is needed for justification. But what Roman Catholics and Roman Catholic doctrine does not believe about justification, that it is by grace alone and by through faith alone, by Christ alone. See, the Roman Catholic formula for justification before God is by grace plus merit, through faith plus works, by Christ plus the sinner's contribution of inherent righteousness equals justification. Where the reformers, or the biblical view of justification, the reformers said this, no, we have no works to bring. No, we have no merit to bring. No, we have no inherent righteousness to bring. It's by God's grace alone, received through faith alone, because of Christ alone, based on Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. See, the Reformers brought back the true biblical gospel of salvation. So, see, when someone comes to believe in Jesus Christ, they, may, they must discard the old systems. Whatever system you came from, it must be discarded. See, this is what you must believe. That once you embrace the gospel of grace, whereby you confess that your soul standing before a trice-holy God is the seamless garment of the imputed righteousness of Christ so that you claim no merit of your own, no mixture of other merit with the perfection, the perfect righteousness of Christ, but that you now stand full and complete in Him and in Him alone at true peace with God because there is no place in the universe safer from the wrath of God than in Christ alone. There's no greater place than that. So this passage of Scripture that we're looking at today blows a hole in Judaism. But it blows a hole in every workspace system that there could possibly, that human beings could possibly come up with. Everything has to be discarded when we come to Christ. Everything. Matter of fact, most of the things, all the things you knew about God have to be discarded when you come to Christ. And you have to start from scratch, right? From the bottom up, you have to learn who God is from the Word of God. You have to learn what the Lord requires of, of us from the Word of God. You have to learn what real salvation is so you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt when you die, you know where you're going. Either you're going to heaven to be with God or you're going to the other place and be separated from God. So what is the role and the mission of God presented in the person of Christ? That Jesus is the bridegroom. He is present and we ought to be feasting. But Jesus is the bridegroom who was removed, who dies in the place of his wedding guests. And Jesus is the new robe of righteousness to everyone who believes, who repents of sin and believes in Jesus Christ alone. All the old robes of works must be discarded. And Jesus is the new wine and the wineskins. It's like it says in Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, they are a what? New creation, right? 
old things pass away, and behold, all things have become new. See, that's what it means. When Jesus comes on the scene, everything changes and becomes new. Everything. You can't take this old system and patch the new into it. You can't take this old wineskin that's crusty and stiff and put the new living life of Christ into that thing. You'll just explode. You'll never be able to take it. So you, you have to discard it. And you have to just follow Christ. That's really what it means. Now, I think the radical nature of what Jesus was saying was much more, had much greater impact then than it maybe has today. But I think it does solidify in our mind that, yes, Christianity is narrow. There's no other way to be saved. There's no other way. No matter how much the culture wants to press upon us the plural, pluralistic thinking about, you know, there's, there's many ways up the mountain to get to the precipice, but whatever way you choose, you're going to end up in the same place is, is totally wrong. You're actually telling somebody, or they're telling somebody that you can get there apart from what God has already done. You can't do that. You've got to discard it all. And you got to follow Christ. And I pray that you've done that, and you're understanding that, uh, and that becomes clear to you when you are studying the Word of God, that you're a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for the Word of God. It again just emphasizes for us the clarity of your mission when you came to this earth and what you accomplished when you're here. I pray, Lord, that none of us would be holding on to anything from the old. I pray, Lord, that we would all discard everything and that you would make us anew, Lord, Put in our mind an understanding of who you are from your word. Put in our mind and our heart an understanding of what Jesus came to accomplish in his mission and who he was in his person from the word of God. I pray that our minds would be transformed so we would know the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. I pray for us today that we would stand firm in the truth that the only way anyone could be justified before God is in Christ Jesus, who was our sacrifice, who took the wrath of God, who took and satisfied the justice of God and then, of course, forgave us of our sin, washed it away, and has given us his righteousness and nailed our sin to the cross. I pray, Lord, that would become clear to us so we, too, would have no doubt about our own salvation, but we would be able to communicate it to others too clearly and with passion and boldness and conviction. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.